0: Welcome back to the Thrive Theology podcast, where we discuss theology to help you live thoughtfully as a Christian. Because theology isn't just head knowledge, it's the study of the heart of God. And today we are going into the second part of our interview with Lisa Hensley. Um, we're so excited to be able to bring this to you. One of the reasons that I was really interested in having this interview is because um, in my own life, I've grew up soft complementarian, but I was taught that these Bible passages are very clear and there's a plain reading and it's black and white. And it was a little while ago that I started to realize that it might not actually be that clear. And especially in those passages and that there might actually be cultural blinders or cultural glasses that we're looking at it through that are changing or affecting our decision on what these passages mean and say. Um, and that's important to me because whatever other arguments there might be, cultural, social, whatever, for women in leadership, the Bible is where it's at for me. If the Bible makes a case that it's one way or the other, that's, that's what it is to me. And so without further ado, here's part two of our interview. Next question. Um, if there are women who are more middle of the road on complementarian versus egalitarian spectrum, you know, if we have to put labels on the two ends, how can they have conversations with strong complementarians about women's roles in the home or the church without coming across as feminist or, or self-serving? Um, is it possible for women to speak up on this issue? Because like Emily said, she and I both grew up a little bit more in the complementarian view. And if you look at maybe the bigger name, Um, complementarians in the world, we're talking like John Piper, John MacArthur, Tim Keller, et cetera. Um, I've learned from all of, well, all of those men in different ways, but on this issue specifically, it it feels like you can't really speak too much on it because you're speaking for yourself. Like being your own advocate is somehow not permitted because it's sinful or selfish or self-serving. And we have taught women that.
1: I mean, just church culture as a whole has taught women that and has given a lot of men the privilege to advocate for themselves. And they say things about themselves and also expect to never be challenged on that, which I feel like we can say that out loud and say, okay, we know that's not healthy right? But nevertheless, a lot of times that is that is the culture and it is the environment. Um, and some people really do use this as like a litmus test for orthodoxy. Um, here's our beliefs about the Trinity, our beliefs about the incarnation, our beliefs about fill in the blank, also women. And these these aren't things that are on the same level, right? We've got to learn to tier our theological beliefs. Like we've got to agree, like orthodox, Christian beliefs do not involve whether or not someone is complementary. We have to have room to not call somebody a heretic for disagreeing with us on this subject. Um, and there's no blanket answer for how do you start to have these conversations, right? Because it's just going to depend on so many things, lots of prayer, um, lots of prayer, I think it's always better if we can remove it from the theoretical, um, it is really easy to talk about our beliefs in theory and not talk about, okay, what does this actually look like in someone's life? Like you all have confronted this topic in your life and whether it is, okay, my husband and I don't match up with what we thought, or I'm single. I, I have to accept responsibility for myself. Um, I had to struggle with my call to ministry. Um, with the fact that my husband and I don't line up with a lot of these things, even though he's, you know, a very manly man. I'm the one in seminary. I'm the one that reads um, when it comes to teaching and stuff like that. That's a lot more likely to be me. And it's where these things rub against real life that I think it's easiest to bring up. What are we doing with the single mother What are we telling women who have no choice but to work or their family is going to starve? I think it's really easy. And and I know that sounded extreme, but this really is the situation for a lot of people. Um, And I think we have to find those places, even if it's not our story, where a practical element of our life is clashing with some of these beliefs and then attempt to get other people to wrestle through that with us. And some people will not. There are always going to be people that aren't going to have the conversation. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to be convinced that you no longer believe the Bible because you don't agree with their interpretation of it. And I think that's also something that we have to learn to separate is our interpretation of scripture versus scripture. Um, And it's really easy to act like those two things are the same thing. And then you can just tell whoever disagrees with you or you just don't agree. You just don't believe the Bible. Um, And at that point, you can't have a conversation. Um, That's not a super great answer because you can't make people ask questions. You can't make them see your perspective. And this is a thing that just remains theoretical for men. Like, even if we're going, I do think that this issue really impacts men, but it doesn't impact them practically most of the time. And so it really is something that's just theory for them. And there are going to be men that are never going to come down to that practical level with you. There'll be some that will, but there's going to, and there's going to be women who feel real threatened by this as well. Um, Simply because a lot of times it's not enough for me to say, this is what God wants me to do with my life, whether it's staying home and homeschooling my family. Um, Sometimes it's not enough to say, I know this is what God wants me to do with my family right now because we feel a whole lot better if it's so right that everybody else does it too. And then we're not challenged by, Oh, well, this person over here does something really different from my family. Um, Is that okay? Then we have to work through that kind of dissonance and we'd rather not most of the time.
2: Cause then we know who's safe, right? Like we know who the good Christians are and who the bad Christians are. And we know who's in our tribe and who's not and who, you know, it's the people who, who think that women should be at home. Like, if they think that, then probably everything else about their theology is on track, right? Or, or if they don't, right? Like, or if it, how could you be so oppressive to tell women they have to be at home? Like, obviously, you know, the rest of your theology is going to be out of whack too. So I think we have to, like, avoid the trap of, of you know, using these secondary tertiary issues of theology to test somebody's, like you said, orthodoxy and using it as that litmus test.
0: I'll be honest. I was I would, like five years ago or and before that, I was checking people off on orthodoxy based on their beliefs about women because I'm more of, I'm, well, type eight, which we know you are too, um, Enneagram. So I'm like, I love black and white. I love knowing what's right and wrong. And when I was a teenager, I went way further than my parents ever taught me on this issue and was like, oh, there's rules. Yes. Tell me more. Um, and so now I'm looking at it and we just um, did a two-parter on justice and social justice. And one of the ways that we live out justice is we seek restorative justice for those who are vulnerable, for those who need it. We have a responsibility given to us from God where we need to look out for our fellow people. So just like similar to what you said, men don't really have to because it doesn't affect them. They still have a responsibility to because it's you know 50% of the population. And similar to women, like I'm single. I'm working full time. Like I I'm I'm not in the mold of a stay-at-home wife and mom, even though that's what I want to do someday. And I have you just because it doesn't affect me doesn't mean I get to ignore it or put it off. We have a responsibility to seek the justice or the rights um, for those, even if we don't share their situation.
1: Absolutely. We'd be much better off if we were discipled in that thinking and then we practiced it.
2: So we had, um, I think it was just before COVID, we had an interesting event happen at our church um, and I was not there for it, but we were live streaming our services at this point. We had just started. So I did get to kind of see it um, after the fact, but we had a, just a normal church service. And at the end, we, we took communion. And then at the end, two strangers, guys, um, stood up just before we like did our final song and they rebuked our church for having women in leadership. Our worship leader was a woman um, at that service. I
0: don't remember. Bethany might be able to film. I the was there. Back. Um, and they actually came from an hour away and they had been visiting churches in a wider radius. And we were just on their list for this Sunday. Um, And basically it was calling out our church for having the Jezebel spirit. And wow. we were under oppression Um, and that the men were allowing their women to take the lead and that was wrong. And we were under God's judgment and we were going to go up in fire and like women don't cover their heads and blah, blah, blah. And like, Personally, I was sitting there, my brain went to, how do I theologically refute all of this? Because we have a large um, Mennonite population in where, where we live, and we have people who've come from the old colony Mennonite church and come into ours that have left some of that um, head covering practices and whatnot. And so I was super concerned about them and how, they, how this is going to affect them. But it was it was really scary. Yeah, and and they had to be escorted out by some of the guys that were sitting around them, and they were like yelling and making threats the whole way out. Um, They were like walked off the property to their cars and made sure they left.
2: Yeah, it was wow. It was uh, it was a story. Our pastor handled it wonderfully. I was so impressed with him. He he let them say their piece, and he stood up there and he just he was just standing there with his eyes closed, very thoughtful looking, (laughs) and he just said, "Okay." thank you gentlemen for attending our service. Um, Greg, if you wouldn't mind escorting <laughs> them out and, uh, and then he just addressed the congregation and he said, okay, so we've heard what they had to say. Um, they're strangers. They're not from our congregation. We don't need to listen to them and everything that they've said is not biblical. So we are going to just continue with our service and not worry about it. Like he handled it so well. I was very impressed. Um, and then people talked about it for a few weeks and, and kind of forgot about it, but not just because of that, but I've seen this like they were clearly from a like hyper conservative background. It seemed like um, almost kind of like Westboro Baptisty. It almost not mm-hmm. quite like that, but it kind of reminded me of that. Um, and so I'm curious if you think this is an issue where like in the Old Testament we have a few stories involving the Queen Jezebel or wife of the king, whatever. So she was the very evil wife of a very evil king of Israel, and then we don't hear her name again after like Second Kings. She's never mentioned until Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus is rebuking the church in, I think it is Thyatira, for tolerating, quote, "...that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols." And it seems like I've seen this kind of crop up a little bit in the church, again, in like more hyper-complementarian circles, where like, if you're a woman who asserts any kind of opinion or leadership tendency, like you're a Jezebel. And because you're a Jezebel, you're like a threat to the entire body of Christ. I sometimes see this kind of trickle down where there's almost this underlying like fear that like, if we let women into leadership, they're going to get us off course and drag us down
1: into heresy. Do you think like, how do we deal with this if it comes up? Oh, I would definitely made a cycle on Twitter a few months ago where there was a group of super conservative men that were going around calling out women, calling them Jezebels, you know, this whole big thing. And I mean, it's just kind of a a recurring, it's a recurring cycle. Like it crops up every so often and then they kind of get done and then they come back. Um, and I definitely agree with your pastor. I don't think you have to listen to just anyone who says something about your life, right? You don't know anything about their character. I think we need better tools for who we listen to for one thing. Um, Secondly, I think we have to go back and investigate those Bible stories, right? Like Jezebel in the old Testament worshiped false gods. It's not like, she's never rebuked for, the power that she has, it's how she uses it, right? She, she worships false gods. She does terrible things to get more power for her husband, which is also power for her. Um, the one in, in Revelation, you know, she's leading the people in sexual immorality, worship of these idols. Like if those parameters, again, we take stories in context, right? If those parameters aren't there, then we can't say that. And I know of none of these situations in which someone has been called a Jezebel, that they're leading churches into sexual immorality. Now, are there plenty of stories of sexual immorality in the church? Yeah. And most of them are started by men. There's not women out there leading in the church that, were, that are being accused of being Jezebels that are trying to get the church to worship false idols. So that would really be where I started. I'm like, let's take the stories in context. Here's what it says about Jezebel. Where's this person doing that? Now, the person who came in and talked in your church, you're not going to reason with him. Like that's, that is a pointless conversation. I would never even attempt to have it. But if you have people who have legitimate questions about it, what does this mean? Then we're going to go back to, okay, what does it actually say these people were doing? Because we we know we have the stories And we have to take things from scripture in context. I really think there is just a group of hyper complementarian
0: slash patriarchal men that like to call women names. And that's a real red flag for me. So we're going to go into our last little group of questions here. And they're kind of circled around culture. Um, How have cultural narratives about what it means to be traditionally masculine or traditionally feminine influenced what we think of as biblical manhood or womanhood how does the feminist movement influence this and i'll preface this by saying literally just yesterday i finished reading the making making of the biblical womanhood by beth allison barr and i was fascinated by some of the stuff in there I can't say i was fully convinced am mm-hmm. not sure all of her arguments are spot on in, in my mind but it was an eye-opening eye-opener for me on how we look at culture and how we rewrite historical accounts of women and men and their roles.
1: And that even goes back to the stories that she told, I think it was in her book, where she talked about in you know early church, more medieval times, women got to do things in the church and by overcoming the fact that they were a woman, right? Like they could reach the level of men. And Greek culture taught that women were deformed men. Okay, so we just have to think about how much Greek culture has still trickles in some of these things that we say about women. You know, so back then women got to do things because they overcame their womanly nature. They're as good as a man. She talked about that several times, you know, that that was a compliment. Um, And then we hit the Reformation and what was esteemed and valued in women was that they fit this certain mold role of a um, a wife and a mother and this whole thing and that was what was valuable and that was what gave you a voice um and just looking at history lets us see okay we have shifted with culture through all of these things. Pink used to be a boy's color for like it's very strong boys should wear it. Um, a brief look at history tells us that we still do all of these things. Um, David David played the harp and wrote poetry. Okay. Yes. He also killed lions and bears, but he played a harp and wrote poetry. No one's, no one's hosting men's retreats where you're going to sit around and write poetry together. Like this is not a thing that we're doing, even though we can say this is biblical manhood. Um, we're just picking and choosing the bits of the narrative we want to tell.
2: Yeah. And that reminds me, um, sure you're maybe listening maybe not um the rise and fall of mars hill and how driscoll yeah like it's very heavy to listen to but how he like his whole thing was this biblical manhood right that's what he touted that's what he built his ministry on and you know these conferences he would just like yell at men and you know like make them whatever very messed up. But like, I, and I never listened to Mark Driscoll, but like, they're just talking about all these like attitudes that were in the church. And I'm like, I feel like I was impacted by this. And I had no idea I was being impacted by this, but, and I didn't even like, I wasn't directly impacted by it. I did not read I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I didn't like, but I still was kind of almost secondarily influenced by the purity culture, you know, and, and all these things. And so I'm so thankful that I wasn't directly influenced by Mark Driscoll. And like, other people similar to that um because I I think I would have bought into it hook line and sinker for sure um that's just my personality but yeah I think that that can be really really damaging for sure
0: really started getting into the research and writing on women's issues in the church, I started getting uncomfortable. Um, and that's because it feels almost scary to consider that some of these verses and doctrines that are, that they arise, um, they could be wrong, like really wrong. Um, and if complementarian beliefs weren't actually intended by either the human authors or by the Holy spirit, um, then those misinterpretations specifically complementarianism, um, et cetera, they've caused a lot of harm and segregation and contributed to the oppression of women and their gifts. And frankly, the church has missed out on the full expression of women and their gifts, if this is all the case. And we've already mentioned, Emily and I are in the middle of researching. We haven't made our decision. We don't even really like the terms and egalitarian anymore, but I'm feeling this discomfort. Like if I get to the end and I figure out it's not even in there, there's a lot in church history that has been harmful to women and the church, how, how do we deal with this discomfort of God allowing this misinterpretation to persist for so long?
1: It is really uncomfortable. Um, we are not super practiced at being uncomfortable, um, at least not in Western white churches. It's not something that we've practiced and we need to practice it because if we look at the history of the church, not just on this topic, we're going to find lots of places where the church has gotten it wrong. I just wrote a research paper talking about the church's complicity in the Holocaust. And I mean, it was grievous to read the things that were done that we tried to stamp God's name on. Um, And I think it's actually, it's actually worse to Just ignore it, just pretend it's not there. Let's talk about the American church and its background with slavery. How many denominations split over the issue of slavery? We couldn't just say, hey, this is wrong. We should not be doing this. Um, It's valuable practice if you start down this and you feel uncomfortable to not run away it is going to make you regardless of what you decide on this issue truth truth isn't scared it's not challenged like you can push against truth all you want and unless you're trying to tell your own story like truth truth isn't moving right you can ask all the hard questions of scripture and the church and what god has allowed to happen that you want and that foundation that we have in christ doesn't shift But if we refuse to ask the questions because it makes us feel uncomfortable, I promise you there are people that do not believe in Jesus, that see all of these things that are making us uncomfortable, and they're not scared to ask those questions. It's just now you won't be honest with them about it. I think it actually damages our witness to the rest of the world when we will not sit in the discomfort um, of what our own history has been. And the things that we've claimed we've believed. It's not just, oh, well, this has damaged the church in the past. Like, we've missed out on the voices of women, the voices of Black people, the the voices of Jewish people. Um, It's not just that, although that's a big deal. This is impacting our ability to share Christ with the world now, if we're not willing to be honest about our own history and the own places where we're not sure what we believe or if that's right.
2: Well, I feel like that's a good place to end. (laughs) That's encouraging to just be reminded that there is truth regardless of how we've been raised, regardless of what's happened in centuries past in the church. And it's never too late to turn to that truth. And uh, start to start to change the way that we're looking at things. Um, just before we let you go, do you have any resources you would recommend to our listeners for those who are, maybe this is like mm-hmm. totally new for them? Maybe they've been in kind of that complementarian um, culture their whole life. And this might be totally new or somebody who's maybe more egalitarian who wants to learn more about um, this,
1: this topic. Yes. In um, to, if, if this is something just really brand new, um, to you, two places that I would start is um, "Half the Church" by Carolyn Custis James, and then "Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood" by Amy Bird. Those would be the very, the very first two recommendations that I had. And of course, I have stacks of books on top of that. Um, Cynthia Westfall wrote paul and gender it's a very academic book like it's tough to wade through Um, i would suggest actually looking in your podcast app just putting her name in and listening to some interviews that she's done i think for most people if you're not looking to read an academic book on women and the bible (laughs) listen to a few of her interviews and you're going to get some great information out of those Um, there's also a very large book, Icons of Christ by William Witt, and he goes through Protestant and Catholic um, beliefs about men and women and how that plays out in the church. I learned a whole lot.
0: We will obviously put links to your website um, and links to your Instagram stories. That's kind of what um, set Emily and I off on to look at you for interviewing this because you have all those highlights on gender and we just had gone through them all at one time. Um, So we'll link those so people can find you too. Um, Thank you so much for coming and being on this conversation with us. We really appreciate the way that you come at this conversation with Grace and just asking everybody, okay, stop wait, think, rather than just running ahead. Um, Thank you so much for being gracious and joining us.
1: I appreciate you inviting me. It's one of my favorite things to discuss this. So I was thrilled. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive
2: Theology podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.